Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would bless the, not only the reading, but also the proclamation of your word. Father, I pray that we would, um, in Christ, hold uh, tightly in one hand the faith uh, of delivered to us, and um, in the other hand, hold tightly to a good conscience. And so, uh, wage the good warfare that you have committed to us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. And I don't think I've ever told you that when I was in 10th grade, my best friend's father was, as he tells it, told by God that I would be a preacher when I grew up. That was a full two and a half years before I even became a Christian. Now, if God was going to tell him something, I wish he would have told me that I wasn't a Christian and that I needed Jesus. Um, but uh, I ended up coming to Christ when I was in college. And here I am today, a preacher. <laughs> How much confidence do I put in this word that uh, God gave to my best friend's father? Well, I put zero confidence Uh, in this so-called prophecy. How can I draw any confidence from what God told him? Maybe it was pure coincidence that I became a preacher. Maybe he had some spoiled milk before he went to bed. I don't know. Maybe God gave him some enlightenment. Who knows? But how can this benefit me? You know what gives me confidence as a minister? I did two full internships, one at the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah and the other at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Panama City, Florida. In both instances, the elders of the church encouraged me to pursue ordination. I went to seminary, Westminster Seminary, graduated with honors. I also stood for ordination in Gulf Coast Presbytery and easily passed the written Uh, exams, the oral exams before the committee, and even standing uh, on the floor of presbytery, passed all those exams. I was ordained by Gulf Coast Presbytery. They laid hands on me, like we did recently with Jimbo, and they solemnly charged me to be faithful to the calling to which I was being called as a minister. Being recognized, encouraged along, and ordained by the church, that's what gives me confidence as a minister. Paul, in verse 18, reminds Timothy to remember his ordination to ministry. And so, uh, verse 18, Paul says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Now, you may be wondering how I got that this was Timothy's ordination from verse 18. Well, if you compare it to chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. In other words, uh, there's prophecy involved, but it was accompanied with the full approval and authority of the council of the elders. This was, so Paul's saying, remember, Timothy, 
that you were ordained by the church, remember that you have the full authority and approval of the church when you go and wage the warfare that I am commanding and charging you to wage. So in verse 18, Paul's charging Timothy to remember the authority that the church had conferred upon Timothy. Timothy was going into Ephesus. And he was going into a hornet's nest. He was going into a very difficult situation. Uh, Heresy was being taught by the elders in the Ephesian church. And so he was not to go simply in his own authority. But he was to go with the authority and the full weight of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's charge to Timothy was the church's charge to Timothy. Timothy was being sent to Ephesus not to dispense sunshine and lollipops and rainbows. He was going to engage in warfare. So listen again to verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Timothy was being sent to Ephesus to fight. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul told Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul told Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, he's telling Timothy, you should expect persecution. In 2 Timothy 1.8, Paul told Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. When I was pursuing the ministry, I weighed all these, um, these passages that Paul gave to Timothy. I weighed all these passages that told me that I would suffer for the ministry of the gospel. And so I counted the cost. I knew that I would have to fight at different points in my ministry. At my previous uh, congregation, I had to fight for nearly a year for um, the testimony of the gospel. Things had had gotten out of... of, um, out of sorts, and I wanted to keep my head down. I was the associate pastor. I wanted to let the senior pastor do all the, the fighting, take all the bullets. Um, but I knew that I would have been less than faithful if I kept my head down and, and uh, let things go as they were. The elders of the church all resigned. We had nine elders at one point that resigned and we had two left and then one left because of of what was happening in the church. I would have been overcome with discouragement if I did not have a very clear conscience before the Lord. My clear conscience and my resolution to stand firm because I had counted the cost that Paul put before Timothy far from destroying me or discouraging me caused me to grow as a minister. I still remember after that year, my wife said to me, she said, welcome back because I had been just emotionally a basket case 
as I tried to be faithful to the Lord through that difficult situation. I think we can all benefit from the principle Paul is giving to Timothy. These principles go beyond just principles for ministry, although he's talking to Timothy uh, about ministry. In other words, if God has given you a calling, He expects you to pursue your calling, whatever it may be, with all your heart. It may be difficult, it may be costly, it may be even something that you do not enjoy doing. But if you are called by God, in whatever calling you are called, God expects, it to, God expects you to give it your all by His grace. So, for instance, the moment you say, I do, you are called to give it your all in your marriage, even if it turns out to be a difficult marriage. The moment your baby is born, you are called to be a dedicated parent, even if your child screams every night for the first year of its life. Right? You can't say, oh, well, God, I'm, uh, I don't like this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up on this calling. You can't do that. When your employer hires you, you are to do your job every day to the glory of God. Whatever you're calling, you must do it with all your heart as unto the Lord with His grace, by the power of His Spirit. I mentioned a moment ago when I was talking about the difficulties in my previous church that were it not for my clear conscience, I would have been overcome with discouragement. Paul knew the importance of having a clear conscience as you serve the Lord, especially if you are engaging in spiritual warfare. The importance of the conscience is often overlooked in our day and age. But it is very, very, very important. Previous generations gave much more uh, attention to the importance of the conscience than we do today. The 17th century Puritans called the conscience God's deputy or God's domestic chaplain. Are God's preacher in the soul. Pursuing a clear conscience has made many a person uh, more brave and more bold than they might otherwise have been. Certainly it was true in my case. A good conscience acts as a soft pillow for restful sleep when you are taking an unpopular stand because of your faith in Jesus Christ. Someone has said that a quiet conscience sleeps in thunder. We live much of our lives within the privacy of our secret desires and thoughts. Pursuing a clear conscience will help us pursue a a holy thought life. On the other hand, the opposite is also true. Ignoring your conscience. Trying to escape the inner voice of your conscience is the most dangerous and damaging thing that you can ever do. Closing the ears of your soul leads to a hardening, a calcification of your affections. Your devotion to God is weakened and your conviction of sin is less tender. Remember how the the promise given to Ezekiel 
how God said, I'll give you a heart of flesh and take away your heart of stone. A heart of flesh is tender, easily pricked by the word of God. You want a heart that's tender. You want a heart that's easily pricked by the word of God. You don't want a heart that's calcified, that's hardened over because you haven't been given due attention to your conscience. It's dangerous. When I went to seminary, um, Independent Presbyterian Church sent three couples uh, at the same time to seminary. Actually, they sent five couples to seminary in the same year. One couple to Reformed Theological Seminary, another couple to Gordon-Cromwell, three couples to Westminster Seminary. Uh, They sent Mandy and me, uh, they sent Rose and Doug Nystrom, and the Nystroms uh, sent us the, the James family uh, from Arkansas, and so we we're um, so thankful. And then there was a third couple. I'm not going to mention um, their names. I'll simply call his name Phil. And Phil was much, much smarter than me, you know, whereas I'm trying to struggle along and memorize some scripture and memorize a shorter catechism. Phil had memorized a larger catechism, if you've ever looked at that. And one day, however, my professors came to me, to, and they wanted me to speak to Philip, or Phil, um, because the professor had become concerned. He wasn't turning in any of his assignments and was in danger of flunking out. And he knew that we came from the same church. I knew him well, so he asked me to see if I could figure out what was going on with Phil. So I took him aside, tried to figure out what was happening in his life. He wasn't very forthcoming. So I started taking his spiritual inventory. If you've been in an accountability relationship, discipling relationship, you might know what that is. I began asking him about his prayer life. How's your prayer life? How's your devotional life? Are you reading scripture? How's your marriage? Do you have financial strains in your life? Wasn't getting anything from him. And then I asked him about his thought life. Was he seeking to be holy in regard to lust? Sadly, I hit pay dirt. He proceeded to tell me that Christians today are too puritanical in their view of lust. He said that Christian men with their preoccupation about avoiding lust are really just being legalistic. And of course, I quoted to him all the relevant relevant, uh, Bible passages you would expect me to quote. But he dismissed me as being naive. He He simply would not listen to me. You can guess what happened. He ended up flunking out of seminary, um during his first year, before his first year ended. He, so he got a job in the Philadelphia area. And before long, he had a restraining order taken out against him by a female co-worker because he was pursuing her very aggressively. Well, that's sad to hear. But Phil also had a wife and three small children. His wife divorced him and moved back south. Philip allowed his conscience to become seared. I've seen other people I've cared for ignore and close their ears, um, the ears of their soul to the voice of their conscience. I've seen their conscience um, become seared and 
the Word of God doesn't have that same effect on them. They're not convicted by their sin. I want to tell you, speaking with Phil that night, I knew Phil quite well. It scared me. So I want to tell you, never, never, on account of what's, what, um, on account whatsoever, do that which your conscience cannot square with the Word of God. Don't stop listening to your conscience. Don't ignore your conscience and do the opposite of what your conscience informed by the Word of God is telling you to do or not do. There's a passage of Scripture I was thinking about this morning. And I want to take a a moment or two to read it. It's from uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse 22, he talks about letting us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so he's talking about letting us draw near to Christ because our conscience have been sprinkled with clean water. In other words, we've been forgiven of our sins. We've been forgiven of not only the evil actions, but the evil uh, thoughts that might still accuse us. And then he goes on. He says, but if, verse 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he's talking about a person here who is closing the ears of their soul to their conscience. Sinning deliberately before the Lord. He says, nothing remains, verse 27, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury and fire that will consume the adversaries. If anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant? So here's the law of God, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Set it aside. And he's saying, how much worse if you set aside Jesus all because you were so intent on following your own desires rather than your conscience informed by the Word of God. Skipping on down to verse 32, and I'll just read 32 through 38, even though we're a little bit behind on time. I think this is important. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. You had joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had better possession and an abiding one. All right, so these people were faithful to the Lord. They had a strong walk with Christ. Then he says in warning them, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Within the context, he's talking about Christians. Um, He's writing to Christians who are tempted to shrink back because they're following not the voice of of their conscience being informed by the Word of God, but are following after 
their own will. And so um, the writer of Hebrews is warning them as sternly as he can, as I am now trying to warn you, don't ignore your conscience. You do it to your own eternal peril. You say, well, what about eternal security? I'm not going to get into that issue this morning. I am simply going to say that you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ wherever you are, whatever you've been doing, in whatever ways that you have ignored conscience. You turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there with open arms to receive you. There may be consequences for ignoring the conscience. And it may be more difficult to have your heart easily pricked by the Word of God because there may be still a calcification, some bad habits that you have, uh, have picked up along the way. Turn to the Lord Jesus, wherever you are, however badly your conscience might be seared. He is there to welcome you. You can't out the grace of our Lord Jesus. Timothy was going to be lied about. Figuratively speaking, he was going to be pummeled by the enemies of the gospel. And so Paul told Timothy the only way he was going to survive was to hold the truthfulness of the Christian faith and all that it uh, means in the one hand and a clear conscience on the other hand. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made previously about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. The faith in one hand and the conscience in the other, I think it should be read as the faith. I can give you several reasons. Uh, I'm not going to take time to do that. You can ask me about that later. So he's basically saying, hold the gospel. Hold the promises of God in one hand. Hold the truthfulness and faithfulness of God's Word in one hand. And hold a good conscience in the other. The gospel and the promises of God and a clear conscience act as your sword and your shield whenever you are called to wage the good warfare. They're indispensable. Now, waging um, spiritual warfare does not always end as you'd like. There's usually a cost. Sometimes you pay the cost. The enemies of the gospel, as the enemies of the gospel come against you. But it will be worth it. Sadly, I think the greatest cost that I've had to bear is watching someone I care about implode spiritually. When I go after them with the gospel and go after them with the gospel and go after them repeatedly over and over and over again and they close their ears, they make up excuses or they turn their back and run away. That's the biggest cost that I've had to endure uh, as a minister of the gospel. Watching them refuse, just like Phil, to listen to the gospel. Paul had to go through the same. He had to bear the same burden, the same cost. He says in, in verse 19, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
These men started out well, but they didn't give careful attention to their conscience. And it caused them to let go of the Christian faith. They fell so far that they began to blaspheme God. But Paul's not giving up on them. He began the, church, the process of church discipline. Apparently, it has moved uh, through the various steps of church discipline as Jesus outlined those steps in Matthew 18. And now, he's handed them over to Satan to teach them not to blaspheme. Paul's not saying, okay, I'm going to really punish you. What he's saying is, I love you enough to put you in the hands of Satan to see if living under his control will, make, will be so distasteful to you that you'll flee back to the Lord Jesus. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Here's the steps of church discipline that the Apostle Paul is uh, mentioning. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and, sh- and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others alone. Uh, with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or, as Paul puts it, put him in the hands of Satan. Removing from the fellowship of the church... If you want to act like the world, there's the world. Go um, be be under the the watch care of Satan. Maybe that will be able to pierce through the hard, encrusted um, heart that has been dulled by the the ignoring of um, the voice in your soul, your conscience. And so he turns him over um, to Satan for a time. Sadly, that sort of process has to play out from time to time. It is always for the, the good of the sinner. It is always looking to reclaim a brother or sister back uh, within the fold. And so here's Paul's admonition, his charge to Timothy. Let me ask you, are you seeking to be faithful to Christ in the calling that He has given you? Are you seeking to be faithful to Christ in every area of your life? Are there areas in your life that you are closing the ears of your soul and not listening. Dangerous place to be. But our Lord Jesus Christ welcomes you back. And also, for that call with which He has called you, He charges Timothy because He knows that Christ is going to give him the grace to wage the good warfare. He's going to give you all the power by His Spirit and by the the gospel that you need to be faithful whatever situation you find yourself in. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before Your throne of grace. We draw near boldly and with great confidence.
because our consciences have been um, washed clean by the blood of Jesus. And we are seeking to obey all your commandments, to put them into practice and not be like the man who, looking at himself in a mirror, immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like. But rather we are dwelling intensely on your word because we want to put your word into practice because we want to have a conscience that is clean. We want to have a good conscience that we might wage the warfare without being tempted to to be halting or to be assaulted with a guilty conscience. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.